Hey folks, Brian here. Before we get started, I just want to ask those who are listening who have not done so to please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. And to those who have already done so, thank you very much, and please tell a friend. Now then, on with the show. episode number 20 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, let's see, as far as gaming goes, not too much. I haven't had time to uh, go to Pinball Pete's. I do plan on going to the arcade in Brighton either this weekend or perhaps next weekend if I can clear the funds. Uh, let's see, I celebrated my 51st birthday earlier in, or excuse me, last week. And it feels a little weird, you know, now that, you know, as you age a little further, you feel a little bit of your physical capabilities starting to fade a little bit, but they haven't really done that much as far as video games go, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, It does worry me a little bit, but, you know, it's one of those inevitable things you have to accept. Uh, Let's see, my new computer game of choice is Battletech. Um, They were running a Black Friday weekend special on Steam uh, for the main game, which was like, I think, $16. So I just decided to say, hey, let's do it. I mean, I played uh, the tabletop version, dice and paper version of Battletech back in the early 90s uh, when I found my new gaming group. And I had a lot of fun with it. We had a really nice campaign Uh, which unfortunately just died off. Uh, I think it kind of died off after the uh, mech company that we were a part of. Um, We all decided to go to Solaris 7, and we all became very rich by betting on ourselves. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. So this game is a pretty much a complete rendition of the dice and paper game, which has gone through several uh, revisions over the years. And it's a lot of fun to play, even though it can be a little frustrating. Um, so, yeah, I've been playing that a lot lately. I haven't had a chance to play it much this week because things with work and other things have been uh, taking precedence. So, you know. I'll get back into it, of course. Anyway, so let's get into the emails. I do have a voicemail. Once again, it's from Mike Stewart. Hey, Brian. Mike here, calling again. Um, Listening to your episode on the Commodore 64, great one. 
That was my first actual home computer. Great game, great system, very durable. Um, I did have a question, though, about your opinion of the book and movie Ready Player One and their treatment of 80s video games, if you had an opinion on one or the other. Obviously, the book had a lot more than the movie, but keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, let's see. The I absolutely loved the book Ready Player One. I couldn't say enough good things about it. I've recommended it to most of my friends who are video game heads. Uh, all of the callbacks to the eight video games from the uh, late 70s, early 80s, going through the middle 80s. I think it pretty much rested right in there. It's been a while since I've read it. I need to reread it, as a matter of fact. I think I'm pretty much due. I think I read it maybe like a year and a half ago or something like that. I never did actually get the opportunity to watch the um, movie adaptation of the book. And I've already heard from a bunch of people who have seen it that it's nowhere near as good as the book was. But isn't that true like 99.9% .9 of the time that the movie adaptation of the book never quite lives up to the hype of that the book got? So um, I do want to actually watch this movie. I'm going to have to see if I can see it on Netflix or on uh, Amazon because I have a Prime account. So yeah, I'll be looking into that and um, I will certainly give my opinion of that uh, movie when I actually have some time to sit down and actually watch it. But thank you once again for your email, Mike. Uh, and like Mike, if you want to get a hold of the show, you can, of course, email me at arcadeaddictbrian, all one word, at gmail.com. If you want to leave a voicemail like Mike did, you can call this number, 734-743-2433. Also, uh, social media is up and running, of course. Uh, I have a Facebook page, which apparently is the um, most successful out of all the social media I have for, for this podcast. On Facebook, you just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. And also, uh, a big shout-out and thank you to all of the people who have um, liked and followed the page. I'm already up around 200 followers, which is really, really good. And I'm very, very happy about that. Like I said, it's you people who are listening. Um, and I also look at the... Um, the uh, analytics on uh, Anchor and other places, and I see that the podcast is moving along nicely, and I want to thank each and every one of you who listen. Um, all I can say is, is that, you know, by all means, please participate, you know, ask questions. Um, I also have a discussion group on Facebook for the podcast under the same name, so uh, what posts I make on the main Facebook page, also go there, and vice versa. Um, also, you can get a hold of me on Twitter, at ArcadeAddict underscore B. On Instagram, it's at ArcadeAddictBrian. And Tumblr.com is Tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So, by all means, if you want to get a hold of the show, ask questions, uh, make suggestions, anything of that nature, like I said, as long as you're nice, you know, have at it. I'm here. Uh, I check these on a semi-regular basis, so 
If you have any sort of suggestion, the easiest way to get a hold of me is at the uh, Facebook page because I check that most often. Uh, the Instagram, I usually uh, post pictures of arcade runs and so forth, which reminds me when I do go to the arcade in Brighton and also when I go to these other places that I'm going to um, have for uh, arcade rundown and arcade review. Um, but I will post them on Instagram, so um, just check into those if, you, if you're so inclined. Okay. Oh, by the way, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I did get my first donator to the show, and his name is Benjamin Brodell. I think that's how you pronounce your name. If not, I apologize. Uh, please correct me on that, because one thing that I really hate is getting somebody's name wrong. Um, but yes, he's been the first contributor to the show, and I thank you very, very much. As a matter of fact, your contribution <laughs> as sad as this sounds, your contribution helped to be able me to be able to eat lunch while at work uh, for the last week until I was able to get my paycheck. So yes, your contribution has helped mightily. Um, of course, if you are so inclined, uh, if you want to contribute to the podcast like Benjamin did, uh, just go to uh, anchor.fm slash COAA. And that will put you on my page, and there is a link to uh, be for you to contribute to the show. You can contribute as little as a dollar, um, or as much as you like. So, if you are feeling generous, and this is the holiday season, <laughs> uh, by all means, go right ahead. Okay, uh, with all of that done and taken care of, let's get into the meat of the show. So, let's move on to top tens top tens 1988 okay when i cast my memory back to this year it was a good one for me and a not so good one for me 1988 um i'm still working at cvs with my best friend robert and uh, we were able to go to a couple of concerts that year. Um, this is the first rock concert that I've ever been to on my own. I had gone to uh, music concerts with my mother, but that was back when I was a kid. I want to say I was like, oh, I want to say, I think I was like six or seven. Uh, I remember uh, she took me to a concert. It was the Spinners. Um, my family, myself included, were big Spinners fans back in the day, and she took me to a concert. I don't remember where the concert was. I think if I did some digging, I could probably find out where it was, but I know it was somewhere in Connecticut. I don't think it was New Haven. Um, it was somewhere in Connecticut because I think the drive home was like about an hour or so, if I remember correctly. <laughs> my memory's really fuzzy going back that far. But, um, anyway, um, both my, me and my best friend, Robert, we went to, um, Iron Maiden in 1988. Um, we went to see, uh, Metallica in 1988. That was one of the best, those two were the best concerts I've ever been to, actually. And I'm not saying that just because of, uh, because of nostalgia. Um, you know, both of those 
concerts were great. I mean, Queensryche opened up for Metallica. That's the first time I got to listen to Queensryche. I was an instant fan because their music was fantastic. And, of course, Metallica was brilliant, you know, as far as, you know, what they did. You know, it was a great concert. It was fantastic. Um, as it turns out, I found out a couple of years later, my buddy Chris was at that concert. Um, just before I think I met him face to face, either I had met him already, but I think it was before we became friends. And yeah, it was just wonderful, those two. But as far as arcades going, this was the start of the dark times, you know, as far as all my arcades in my hometown were concerned. Um, Trumbull Mall Arcade was starting its decline that would lead to its closing inside of a year. And little did I know, Spanky's was going in that same direction. Um, it was a little bit of a different time for me because now I'm working close to full-time hours at CVS. So I wasn't able to go to the mall anywhere near as much as one, as I once did. Um, and it was also the same thing for, uh, you know, hanging out with, you know, any of my friends aside from Robert, who I would pretty much see almost every day. Um, you know, I didn't see Mark as much anymore. So yeah, it was just sort of a different life, a different time in li my life, I think. I was starting to grow up a little. Uh, as far as gaming went, um, I infrequently went to Spanky's. I infrequently went to the mall. I think I was playing games more at the news corner on my way home from work than uh, any place else. I would go to uh, Milford Rec very infrequently, you know, maybe once every other month, maybe even as often as once every three months. I think Robert and I would go to uh, the the uh, to go to Milford Rec every so often, every once in a great while. Um, I think working together, this is just how my personal feelings on it, you know, Rob, if you're listening, tell me if I'm off on this, but I think we were kind of seeing too much of each other. So working together almost every day. So we would sort of not get together and do stuff as much as we once did, especially back in, you know, high school and, you know, in the years after that. So you know, I mean, I'm starting to grow up. I mean, 1988, I'm 19 years old, going on 20, and, you know, the world is changing for me, and it will continue to do so. But anyway, let's get into the top tens. Once again, uh, no particular order. You know, I just felt that these games that I played were the best of a particular year, this one being 1988, so let's get into it. Uh, the first one, Cabal. I loved this game from the first time I played it at the News Corner. Um, it's a, uh, a pseudo 3d shooter and you have, you control a, uh, soldier and you have, uh, you control a soldier with a trackball, which was really interesting. It was a very interesting game. I really liked it. I mean, the environment is almost completely destructible. As a matter of fact, you were almost, uh, almost encouraged to shoot up the environment because there would be there could be power-ups hiding behind that wall or you know destroying that tree or you know this building you would get points for destroying the buildings and you know um 
basically it, it's sort of like a fixed shooter but instead of it being uh bottom to top it was you were at the bottom of the screen but everything was pseudo 3d it was like a mixture of like 3d and uh isometric view and it was just one of these games that was really really fun to play so yeah every time i went to the news corner i played it um there was another another uh place it had i think milford wreck had it um i have this half remembered memory of mark and i going to the uh, going to Milford Rec and they had Cabal there and you know we ended up playing it um, but I don't think I don't know if that's actual correct or not I've got so many memories stuck inside my head some of the, some of them sort of mixed together uh, but anyway uh, Cabal uh, Chase HQ uh, this one was also in the news corner um, I think it was also in um, it might have been in Bolarama's game room before Bolarama closed down because I think Bolarama closed down this year. Um, basically, it's a, a pursuit game. It's sort of like it's sort of like a race game, but it also has uh, uh, cops and robbers elements to it. There was it, each uh, level was two stages. The first one you had to uh, get to you know drive a certain uh, distance. And you had to do it quickly before the time ran out in order to be able to intercept the criminal you're trying to apprehend. Then once you app then once you made that part, then you actually had to chase the uh, um, chase the criminal and r ram your car into his several times before the time ran out uh, to uh, you know win the, you know to beat the level and go on to the next level which of course would get slightly harder and slightly harder um it was a really fun game to play although it was really frustrating once you got around like level three or four but yeah it was really fun i mean uh the the funny part about it is that you're a protagonist you know, you're a cop of course so the car you're driving is a porsche 928 <laughs> which was a really interesting uh choice considering this game came straight from japan uh, so yeah, Chase HQ, Double Dragon 2 The Revenge. This is my favorite Double Dragon game of the entire franchise, uh, arcade and home systems. Um, in this one, uh, basically your, uh, your um, nemesis from the first game apparently couldn't deal with the fact that you defeated him in the first game. And, you know, he's basically it, this guy with a, an assault rifle, an M16, it looks like. And when you start the game, uh, you see that he shoots your girlfriend dead. <laughs> you know, it was, it was really kind of shocking to me in a way, you know. Um, but, yeah, so you are either uh, Billy or Jimmy, and you are going through a much harder and a much more difficult-to-defeat gang to get to that person at the end and to, you know, basically take your vengeance for him killing your girlfriend. Um, the play is much faster. Uh, the play is more difficult, as you might think. And it's just, it's more fun, in my opinion, than the original Double Dragon. And the original Double, Double Dragon was a lot of fun. So, yeah, Double Dragon to the Revenge. Okay, Gain Ground. 
This one is from Sega. I love this game. I love playing it in the arcade. I love playing it on the uh, the Genesis when it came out. I think it came out in 1990, I think. Um, but yeah, uh, this one is very interesting. The premise is, is that you're going through time to get allies to defeat uh, defeat this person who has... Um, basically just uh how should i put it he's gotten these strongholds through time and you're going to through the you know you're basically either uh defeating all you have to defeat all of the uh enemies in a particular level either that or you escape you have all of your uh your uh characters escape that uh uh level there, those are the two ways to, to defeat a level is by ki either killing all of the enemies on that level or just escaping that level. Um, and as you're going through these particular levels, you're getting, you can gain allies. They're like these allies who are like in these, uh, like, uh, gem statues. And each one of them has different attributes. Some of them run fast. Some of them have uh, good long-distance weapons. Uh, some of them are, uh, you know, have really, really powerful weapons, but can't move fast. And it's just a wide variety. I mean, it's actively encouraged to, you know, do what you can to get these allies. And you just build your, you know, build your force, you know, person by person by person. Then, of course, if you die while playing a certain character, that character turns into a statue, and then the next person that you decide to send on that level can rescue that character, and so on and so forth. Um, I've played this game, like I said, in the arcade, uh, in emulation, and, and, and on the uh, Sega Genesis, and it's a fantastic game, even though it's really hard. <laughs> you know, it can be really frustrating, especially once you start getting into the futuristic levels. You know, when you start going into, like, uh, oh, God, like the uh, 22nd century or something like that. I forget what the uh, actual eras you go into, but it starts prehistoric, then it goes medieval, then it goes to... Um, like World War One technology, World War Two technology, um, like Vietnam War era technology, modern day. Then it starts going into like uh, the two thousands and the twenty one hundreds and so forth. Um, and by this time, you you know have to defeat the uh, defeat the boss in like I can't remember the century. I think it's like the twenty fifth or twenty sixth century, something ridiculous like that. But yeah, I mean it's a lot of fun to play. Um, hard driving. Uh, this was the first, like, realistic physics game that Atari put out. Um, in this one, you are taking, you're driving a car uh, through uh, a either a, a speed track or a stunt track, depending on which one you wanted to use. And uh, you know, I've played the stand-up version. I played the sit-down version. It is so much fun to play. It's it's a great game. I mean, of course, the you know the courses are a little primitive by today's standards, but you know, so what. Um, so it, this is one where you basically had to watch your speed. If you're on the uh, the speed track, 
um, you had to have the right speed going into turns. Otherwise, your car would lose traction, start drifting into the oncoming lane. And, of course, there's oncoming traffic. And one of the best things about it was is that when you crashed, you actually got to see a replay of how you crashed and so on and so forth. Um, you know, like I said, this is one of the best games of 1988. I love playing it. Um, trying to remember who had it. Um, Milford Wreck definitely had it. Uh, I want to say Tromo Mall had it for a little while, but that might not be right. Um, and I think one other place had it. I think maybe Spanky's had it. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun to play. Uh, John Elway's team quarterback. This was a really good football game. Um, this one had a lot of strategy. This one was sort of like John Madden before John Madden. Um, John Madden's football would come out, I think, for the computer in the same year. Um, but uh, this one was more advanced because the action was faster. Um, John Madden didn't really start, did not really start coming into its own until like uh, 1989, I think. So um, with this one, of course, you know, it's a typical, you know, typical football game, but in this one, you had plays, you had offensive plays, you had defensive plays, and it, you had to have the right play uh, in order to score. And it was a really interesting game. If I remember correctly, the uh, John Oley's team quarterback, it had, instead of having a button to pass the ball, it had a lever that you had to pull back and hold and then you had to be able to gauge how far the ball would go to be able to, you know, be able to complete a pass downfield. I mean, it was very interesting. It was really unique. Um, it was a really good game. I like. I liked a lot. Um, let's see the main event. Uh, this was a wrestling game uh, by uh, Konami. Um, it was. This game was a lot of fun considering the alternative was like Mania Challenge in, back in those days. Um, they weren't, there weren't a lot of, a ton of wrestling games and the really good ones would not start coming out until the following year, 1989. Um, with this one, it's basically just a uh, uh, eight-way joystick and one button. And you did, every, you know, it was basically action button. You know, if you weren't, locked up with your opponent you could do uh physical attacks depending on the wrestler you took um it depend you know depending on the wrestler you took it was a different kind of one and um it was a button masher it really was <laughs> i mean is quarter eating button masher of course when you put a quarter in or a token in you had a certain amount of health and um uh, your health was slowly depleting over time, but when you got hit by the uh, computer or another opponent, um, that would take away a certain amount of health. Having certain wrestling moves took away more health and more health. Um, it was the thing that made it more interesting is that each one, almost every one of the uh, the uh, characters in the game had like WWF and National Wrestling Alliance uh, counterparts. Uh, there was one that was uh, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. There was one that was Hulk Hogan. There was one that was King Kong Bundy. There was one that was like uh, like a 
like an amalgamation of like the Robe Warriors and Demolition at the time. Uh, there was one that was like Pistol Pez Watley. Um, those who are big time wrestling geeks know who he is. And there was, you know, there's one that's Andre the Giant. Um, so, and there was also one that was like Mil Mascaris. He was actually like the best player in the game, in my opinion, because um, there was a cheesy way to beat the opposition if you were really good at button mashing. Um, but I'll go into that if I ever do like a uh, strat strategy uh, episode for it. Um, but yeah, so each one of these uh, characters had different attributes, like uh, like Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and Bill Mascaris and like uh, the Pez Watley character. They were all fast. They didn't inflict a lot of damage, but they were fast. Of course, like Andre the Giant, King Kong Bundy were like the super heavyweights. They were slow, but their attacks did a lot more damage. Then there were the wrestlers in the middle, like the Hulk Hogan character or the Road Warrior slash Demolition character, where they had... A they had the best of both worlds they had decent they did decent damage but they also had like or especially the hulk hogan character i think had like was ridiculous because he had a drop kick and the whole thing was is that you had to inflict damage it was sort of like this stepped up damage kind of thing where you would inf if you inflicted a certain amount of damage it would get you to the next tier of attacks and then if you inflicted more damage, it would get you to the third tier of attacks, which were like the more devastating ones, like, you know, pile drivers and um, uh, suplexes and things like that. You know, it went from like uh, punches and kicks uh, to like drop kicks or body slams and things like that. Then it went from there to like pile drivers and suplexes and things like that. Um, and so on and so forth. I mean, this game ate a lot of my tokens <laughs> because um, the place they had it was Spanky's. So Spanky's and Milferrec, they both had this game. But yeah, it was a lot of fun considering in 1988, you know, professional wrestling was really in the national conscience. So yeah, the timing was perfect for this game. Good on Konami. Uh, let's see, uh, Robocop. This one, I only played a couple of times, but I played it in emulation, and it deserves its place here. Um, of course, this is a direct, almost direct tie-in with the movie, which came out in 87, I think. I think it was 87 when RoboCop came out. Um, and so, you know, it's the same thing. You're RoboCop trying to, you know, defeat the evil corporation that has, you know, got the Detroit Police Department, uh you know, in a, you know, in a bind and outlaws are running rampant over the city of Detroit and so forth, so forth and so on. It wasn't a bad game. It just was a kind of frustrating game for me. I think I played it like a couple times and I think that it was kind of cheesy. So I kind of left it alone, but yeah, Robocop, um, Altered Beast. <laughs> this one of course was the, uh, packing game for the Sega Genesis in, when it came out in 1989, I believe, in the United States. Um, of course, this is the arcade translation. This is the arcade version. And of course, um, I've watched YouTube videos. I never got anywhere near the end. I think I got as far as like the third level. Um, and uh, this, you know, like I said, you're, you're this human who is. Uh, looking to get power-ups as you're killing uh, enemies and destroying the environment and you'll get these power-ups which will 
you know, going like three stages, you know, you get more, you get stronger attacks, which do more damage as you power up the first two times. Then when you get the third one, that's when you transform. The first stage you transform into like this werewolf character and you, you know, have these special attacks, which of course are, you know, really good for when you get to the end, the, the uh, end of level boss. And then I think in the next stage you transform into a dragon, which has, you know, strong physical attacks, but also a distance electrical attack. So, yeah, and that will, and it just goes on and so forth until finally you beat the final boss and you rescue your girlfriend and so forth and so on. You know, the typical goal for games in the mid to late 80s. Okay, Tetris. <laughs> what do I have? What can I say about this game? This game became... Uh, a icon in a very short short period of time. Uh, when it came out in the arcades, it was like everybody wanted to play it. I mean, they still have uh, adaptations of Tetris to this day. You know, there are people on Twitch right now streaming the latest version, which is this combat version of Tetris, where you have like, well, God, how many how many opponents? I think it's like ninety opponents. And, you know, as you, uh, of course, you know, clear levels with your blocks and so forth and get Tetrises and so forth, you know, they kick out uh, various damaging um, uh, things to your opponents. But that's way far in the future. We're, we're like 32 years in the future from it. But the original Tetris, you know, it's... It's Tetris. <laughs> what can I say? You know, this was the originator. It was, you know, found. You know, it was uh, created by you know, uh, a Russian programmer who I hope still is reaping the benefits of this game. You know, thirty plus years later. Um, okay, honorable mentions: uh, Bad Dudes versus Dragon Ninja. A lot of people love this game, and I didn't particularly like it that much. Um, I found you had, it's one of these games, it's a beat-em-up uh, where you're going up against a ninja clan to, uh, you know, free the city from its tyranny, if I'm not mistaken. And some of the levels are really, really cool. And, you know, but the the actual combat, I thought, was a little on the cheesy side. You had to have your timing down really perfectly. And even then, you could get, like, overwhelmed by sheer numbers. Um, but... You know, it was okay. I played it for a little while, but I got really frustrated by it and just sort of stopped playing it. Um, Cyberball. Um, this one is a robotic football game, if I'm not mistaken. I think there's a sequel to it called, like, Cyberball 2012 or something like that. That's the one that I played um, when I first got to Orlando and I started hanging out with my roommate's friends. There was one guy, I can't remember who it was, I think his name was Ron. Uh, and he had like a cyberball, uh, arcade machine in his apartment and, you know, he would have friends over and, you know, they would play cyberball all night, uh, and a couple other games too. But yeah, basically it's a football game. Um, it's sort of pared down. I think it's like five on five, I think. And, you know, it's one of these things where you have to score, before uh, your robots take too much damage and they're destroyed. And depending on which, and considering you're the quarterback of the team, 
um, if you take too much damage or too much time goes off the clock, your your uh, robot gets destroyed and the game is over. But yeah, it's yeah, it's fun. It's a fun game. You know, it's really cool, cool, really cool game to play and a pretty decent game to watch too. Uh, let's see. Uh, Forgotten Worlds. This is from Capcom, I believe. This game was interesting because it was a side-scrolling shooter, but you had a uh, you know you had the 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 eight-way dial on top of your controller on top of your joystick, and it would correspond to the cardinal eight directions in there. And it was interesting. It just never really got my interest that much. I played it a few times. Uh, Milford Rack had it. I think the News Corner had it for a really uh, for a short amount of time, and you know it was okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. Narc. Yeah, this is a Williams game. It's a uh, side-scrolling shooter uh, where you're a cop trying to clean up the streets, and you get from killing. Uh, uh, opponents, you get uh, money and ammunition, and you can power up your weapons, but you can also bust them, which is very, very interesting. Um, yeah, it's kind of, in, it's. I think this is the predecessor, or it's either the predecessor or uh, the direct successor to Smash TV, because the graphics are pretty much in the same kind of vein. Yeah, it's kind of fun to play, but yeah, it's one of those things, one of those games that I maybe played a few times and I, I couldn't quite get a good connection with it, so I just sort of left it alone. Okay, Operation Thunderbolt. Uh, this is the sequel to Operation Wolf. Um, basically, it's use uh, positional guns as controllers, and it's a uh, side-scrolling shooter. And uh, basically, it's the same thing as the predecessor. Um, just the action is a lot faster, and it's more difficult to play. Uh, I never was a big fan of either one of these games, to be honest, but they do deserve, just because a lot of people played them, uh, back, in the, played them back in the day, so I give it to, you know, I give it its just due here. You know, you'll see me doing that from time to time, where... You know, I didn't particularly like a game, but it deserves its own uh, place in the top tens because it got a lot of interest, not be, not just because I liked the game. So anyway, speaking of that, moving on to Prisoners of War. Uh, this one I liked, even though I it got really frustrating. <laughs> um, basically, you are a prisoner of war in like uh, a Vietnam uh, set. And you're trying, I think you're basically trying to escape, you're either trying to escape or you're trying to kill the uh, general in charge of the army that captured you. I can't remember which, but I didn't get particularly far in the game. I think I got like about, maybe about two fifths of the way through the game. Um, basically, you start off with nothing. You have to uh, kill uh, enemy soldiers to get knives, to get... Uh, um, uh, assault rifles, and so on and so forth. And, you know, you have punches and kicks, of course. That's what you use to defeat the soldiers. And then uh, when you get an assault rifle, you can use that as a weapon too, not just to shoot people, but also to um, hit them with, like, the butt of the rifle and so forth. Um, like I said, it's a good game, but it gets really, really difficult really, really fast. Okay, Superman. Uh, this was one of the games that Mark was good at. I, I, I tried to get good at it, but it just never really clicked with me. Um, 
It's a one or two player cooperative game where you can play Superman and the other player plays uh, Captain Marvel, but you basically have the same powers. And I watched a video on YouTube of somebody who beat this game. You know, of course, I didn't know these games had an ending at the time because I was nowhere near good to figure out that they had an ending. But, um, you know, it's, you know, pretty straightforward. As a matter of fact, it's a little too simplistic for me, even though it's kind of it's kind of cool to watch. But, yeah, it wasn't for me. I mean, it was OK, but, you know, it it could have been more than what it was. Let's put it this way. I mean, you know, this is the arcade game. The first video game Superman was for the Atari 2600. And God, what year was that? I think that was 80, either 80 or 81, I think. Uh, with it, it was a tie-in with the Superman movie, which came out in 1978. Okay, uh, Tubin. This was another game Mark was good at. Uh, Milford Wreck had it. Uh, basically, you are basically tubing down a river and you have to avoid you have to like go through gates and you have to avoid uh various uh obstacles and uh opposition like um schools of barracuda if i'm not mistaken and things like that um it was a it was an interesting game i just wasn't it didn't really capture my interest. By this time, I think by the time 1988 rolled around, you know, I stuck with what I liked and I didn't really go that far afield as far as playing new games. If a new game came out, I'd be like, okay, cool, I'll check this out. And if it uh, if it didn't really click with me uh, within the first like three to five times I played it, I didn't really go back to it. Uh, Tubin was one of those games. I mean, it was... One of those games that's deceptively simple, but it's difficult to difficult to master. And of course, um, you know, Mark was really good at it because, well, Mark, like I said before, Mark has a lot of has quite a bit of uh, natural talent when it comes to video games. Vindicators. This is another game by Atari. Uh, this is a tank game, which is in sort of like this isometric view, but it's sort of the view sort of goes right to left left to right and so forth it's really 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 interesting but it's kind of difficult to describe uh yeah so you know basically you're a tank trying to uh basically get through multiple levels there are 14 levels in the arcade game um you can find power-ups uh tank fuel stars shields and uh sub weapons like uh homing missiles and bombs um each level has a key that opens a door on the top of the level, which will either take you to the next level or special hub with multiple power-ups that must be escaped in 10 seconds or less. Um, it's very interesting. I remember, Mar I remember I tried to play this game, and it just didn't really click with me. It's one of, it's one of those things where um, when you played a game in, like... Uh, Milford Wreck, if you didn't go there like regularly, say at the very least once every couple of weeks, you know, it was sort of a waste of money to play new games that you were trying to figure out. Um, that's the only place I remember seeing uh, Vindicators. But yeah, it's the graphics were really cool. This is one of the better games Atari put out in the late 80s, to be completely honest about it. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a fun game. Um, it's just, I ne did, never really got really, really good at this game. It is what it is. So, yeah, Vindicators.
Okay, and let's see. Finally, Ghouls and Ghosts. This, of course, is the sequel to Ghosts and Goblins. Um, I played this one a couple of times. Uh, it's graphically better, you know, prettier than its predecessor. The action is, of course, more difficult. Um, Ghosts and Goblins is probably got a somewhat of a reputation as being one of the hardest uh, arcade games to ever come out, and Ghouls and Ghosts just continues in that vein. And I will leave it at that. You know, like I said, I played a couple times, and it was like, okay, this is even tougher than Ghosts and Goblins, and I don't have the time to devote to it. So, yeah, I just left it be. Uh, those are my top tens for 1988. Um, if you've got any questions, comments, you know what to do. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com. All right, moving right along, let's go into Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, but I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Berserk. Okay. Oh, this is one of the classics. Um, it was an in, It was innovative. It was fun to play to a certain point. <laughs> and then, you know, to a certain point, and then... Uh, yeah, your enjoyment was almost completely predicated upon how good you were at the game. Okay, let's go into Wikipedia. Okay, uh, Berserk is a multi-directional shooter arcade game released in 1980 by Stern Electronics of Chicago. Berserk places the player in a series of top-down maze-like rooms containing armed robots. The player controls a green stick man using a joystick and a fire bu firing button that activates a laser-like weapon. The player navigates a simple maze filled with many robots who fire lasers back at the character. Uh, a player can be killed by being shot, running into a robot or an exploding robot, get electrocuted by the electrified walls of the maze itself, or being touched by the player's nemesis, Evil Otto. The function of Evil Otto, represented by a bouncing smiley face, is to quicken the pace of the game. Otto is unusual with regard of the games of the period, in that there is no way to kill him. Uh, Otto can go through walls with, in, with impunity and hunts the player character. Uh, if the robots remain in the maze, Otto moves slowly, about half as fast as the humanoid, but he speeds up to match the humanoid's speed once all the robots are killed. Evil Otto moves exactly the same speed as the player going left and right, but he can move faster than the player going up and down. Thus, no matter how close Otto is, the player can escape as long as they can avoid moving straight up or down. Which is true. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of figured that one out. Um, you'll hear it in my, uh, in my next segment um, when I talk about how to get good at this game. But to continue. The player advances by escaping from the maze through an opening in the far wall. Each robot destroyed is worth 50 points. If all the robots in the current maze have been destroyed before the player escapes, the player gains uh, a scoring bonus of 10 points per robot. The game has 65,536 rooms, but due to limitations of the random number generation, there are fewer than 1,024 maze layouts. It only has one controller, but two-player games can be accomplished by alternating at the joystick. 
the player as the player score increases, the color of the enemy robots change, and the robots can have more bullets on the screen at the same time. Once you reach the limit of simultaneous on-screen bullets, they cannot fire again until one of the more bullet one or more, one or more of the bullets detonates. The limit applies to robots as a group, not as individuals. Well, thankfully, otherwise this game would be like 50 times harder than it is. Uh, a free life can be awarded at 5,000 or 10,000 points, with no extra lives thereafter. The game's voice synthesizer generates speech for the robots during certain in-game events. Uh, when Evil Otto appears, uh, Intruder Alert, Intruder Alert is uh, spoken. Uh, the, the intruder must not escape, or the humanoid must not escape, heard when the player escapes a room after destroying all the robots. The most famous one, Chicken Fight Like a Robot, is heard when the player escapes a room without destroying all the robots in it. Got the humanoid, got the intruder, is heard when the player loses a life. And there is random robot chatter playing in the background. Um, it usually says things like, attack it, get the humanoid, destroy the intruder. If you leave the, level, the previous level without destroying all the robots, it'll say, get the chicken, kill the chicken, so forth and so on. Uh, let's see, this game was developed by Alan McNeil who had a dream one night involving a black-and-white video game in which he had to fight robots. It was named for the Fred Saberhagen's Berserker series of science fiction novels. Evil Otto was named after Dave Otto, security chief at McNeil's former employee, Dave Nutting Associates. According to McNeil, Otto would smile while he chewed you out. And he would also lock McNeil and his fellow employees out of the building to enforce a noon hour lunch, as well as piping beautiful music in every room. Jesus, guy's a prick. Ugh. Uh, the idea for a black and white game was abandoned. At that point, Stern decided to use a color overlay board for Berserk. A quick conversion was made, and all but the earliest versions of the game are, are shipped with a color CRT display. The game was test marketed successfully as Chicago Singles Bar before general release. Can you imagine that? Uh, Bert Zerk is one of the first video games to use speech synthesis featuring talking robots. In 1980, computer voice compression was extremely expensive, estimated to have cost a manufacturer $1,000 per word. The English version has thir a 30-word vocabulary. Uh, let's see. In 1982, Stern released Frenzy as a sequel. The Berserk, uh, Berserk arcade machine could be converted to Frenzy by simply replacing one processor and installing a different ROM. The influence of Berserk upon popular culture is marked by appearances of the game and samples, and samples of its media within television shows and movies. Several third-party clothes of the original game exist, and the design of the game Seamus is greatly influenced by it. So, yeah, I mean, I remember when the Trumbull Mall Arcade got this in 1980. Um, this was a completely different kind of game than most, most of the other games that were out at the time. Um, this one, had, of course, the speech synthesis was the main attraction even though you know as just as much as the action i would say i'll put those on even even footing uh the game the, the action was you know it was at a curve that was really um it helped you understand you know how to move how to use your use your shots use the terrain as cover 
and so on and so forth without it getting so difficult so quickly that, you know, you got discouraged. Um, as long as you remained patient and didn't do anything stupid, you could really get good scores in Berserk. Um, my personal high score in Berserk is somewhere around, I want to say, mm, 13,000, somewhere around there. I play it in emulation to this day. Uh, the arcade in Brighton has a Berserk machine, as well as a friend, as its sequel, Frenzy. I do play them when I go on arcade runs up there. I mean, I love playing this game. I always, always have. Um, once you figure out how to, you know, how to play the game and how to use use things to your advantage, you can get really far in the game. But you know what? Let's let's call it here and let's move on to time for some strategy so you can hear my own experiences with the game. some strategy uh berserk is fairly straightforward to play you survive and score points by shooting robots and avoiding evil auto when you start the game the robots are a dull yellow and they slowly move towards your position they don't shoot at you yet so it's easy to navigate the level and blast them as you go you just have to make sure not to run into the walls <laughs> i remember my first experiences with this game yeah i remember doing that a lot um, one of my favorite tricks is to try to get the robots to run into the walls and to run into each other. Uh, usually if there are two robots in really close proximity, you run back and forth to lure the robots into running into each other. You get the points for them anyway, and you don't expose yourself to any risk. Um, always try to eliminate every robot on a stage, and you get, like I said, you get a bonus of 10 points per robot that was on the level. So if there were 10 robots on that level, and you kill them all, you get 100 points. Um, I try and remember the maximum, I think, is 14. Uh, of course, that is uh, increased when uh, Frenzy came out in 1982. So yeah. Um, Evil Auto will come out after you. I think it. the formula is it's like one to four seconds plus one second per robot on the level. So if you don't have a lot of robots there, say like less than five, you got to get moving. It, it pays to get moving once you get yourself out of trouble from the start of the uh, level, especially later on. Uh, the ro more rob robots you destroy after he comes out, the faster he goes. You're faster than them in a straight horizontal line, but he has the advantage if you both are moving vertically. I, and I typed this out before I read the Wikipedia page, folks, so I give myself points for that. Um, you use diagonals to escape him and get off the level. Uh, find the closest um, exit. Usually I always try for the exit. You always start off, you usually start off on the left side of the level. You want to go all the way to the right side. You only use the uh, top and bottom exits if you have no choice. Like if you're in a really bad position and you just need to get off the level. Uh, don't let the game talking junk to you discourage you from doing that your main focus is to stay alive more than it is to score points 
Okay, after you score about 500 points, you're now assaulted by red robots who will shoot at you, but only one of their shots can be on the screen at a time. Uh, easy to take advantage of that, um, especially if you've got one that takes like a shot where it's like you're at the far end of the maze, the left side of the maze, and it's on the right side and takes a shot at you. You can basically uh, kill a bunch of robots while that shot is traveling to the left side of the screen. Uh, let's see. At 1,500 points, the robots turn dull blue, and they can have two shots on the screen at the time. Get to 3,000 points, the robots are bright green, and they can have three shots. This is where you really need to be careful because now you'll have to deal with uh, shots coming at you at multiple angles. You know, it's almost the same way when the robots are dull blue, but it's much more easier to manage when there are two shots on the screen than three, because now there will be times where you might have them shooting at you from three different directions. There's only one way to get to get out from, from that crossfire. It's pretty nasty. Um, the trick is to keep moving, use the electrified walls as cover, luring robots to move slightly above or past walls and shoot them without exposing yourselves to a fire. Um, another thing is, is that I think starting with the dull blue robots, um, uh, one thing now, as you kill all the robots on a level, the robots that are alive start moving faster. And I think it's on that level or the green, the bright green robots where uh, they can actually move at the same speed as you, you can move. So it pays to keep them at a distance. Don't let them get close because while they're trying to get close to you and cut you off, they're shooting at you while they're doing it. So, you know, it pays to keep them at a distance. Uh, let's see. 4,500 points, the robots are adult purple and can have four shots on the screen. And this is where it starts getting really, really difficult. Uh, 6,500 points, the robots are a bright yellow and can have five shots on the screen. This is the toughest, this is where it really starts getting tough. Because now, like I said, multiple shots, multiple angles, and even sometimes, um, sometimes the game will be cheesy enough to start you on a level and there'll be a robot like right in front of you but not on a line with you, where your where your shots come from and they'll shoot you and kill you or you there'll only be like one way to get away from like a three-way or even sometimes a four-way crossfire and you know there's only one move to do and if you don't make that move the correct move immediately you lose a life you know it can get frustrating like that um let's see at 7500 points the robots are a bright white and have super fast shots but one at a time this is where your placement becomes crucial because now your margin for error is getting very close to zero and it's only going to get slimmer especially as you as you continue continue through the game uh, don't allow them to pin you down or box you in although sometimes that's much easier said than done um, I think at 9,000 points the robots turn bright pink and can have two super fast shots on the screen and it continues from there I think my high yeah my high score is about 12,000 points because I think I remember I can't remember the color of the robots but they have three uh, super fast shots on the screen at one time and yeah, that's really tough to deal with. So um, yeah, back then I was much better evading super fast shots 
and I was much better with my placement than I am now. I mean, I could probably get back to that level of play, but I'd have to play Berserk exclusively for probably a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, so um, those are my tactics on uh, how to get good at Berserk and what to expect from it. Um, it's guerrilla tactics rule the world. Use your cover. You know, make sure to get to where you you can shoot at the robots, but their fire can't come back at you. You know, it takes some time and some experimentation, but, you know, it, you can figure it out. It's not hard. It only starts getting hard when you are on the dull purple robots level. We have to deal with four shots at one time. That's when it really starts getting hard. Um, super fast shots, like I said, those can be really annoying. <laughs> um especially if you don't have your placement right. And yeah, you can die really, really quickly. Um, I saw the world records on the Wikipedia page. You know, there's one guy who's got a, like a world record of like 410,000, which is ridiculous. <laughs> I can't even imagine getting like 20,000 points, much less 410,000, but that's just me. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, let's see. Let's go on to home systems. There's no place like home. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Brooke, this is not a game, Max. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Clear I'm going home! Home systems. The Atari 7800. I will admit right now, I didn't have a lot of experience with this system. Um, but I did play it a couple of times. I just don't remember where I think a friend of mine or somebody I knew had it. And I was able to play a couple games. But I thought it was really is interesting. Uh, let's read directly from Wikipedia once again. Uh, the Atari 7800 Pro System, or simply the Atari 7800 is a home video game console officially released by Atari Corporation in 1986. Too little too late, if you ask me, um, but I'll get into that later. Um, it's almost fully backward compatible with Atari 2600, the first console to have backward compatibility without the use of additional modules. It was also considered affordable at the price of $140 US. Uh, that's in 1986 money. That's the equivalent of $320 in 2018. Uh, the 7800 has significantly, significantly improved graphics hardware over the 2600, but uses the same audio chip, <laughs> which kind of lets it down, but let's continue. Uh, it also shipped with a different model of joystick from the 2600 standard CX40, the ubiquitous CX40. <laughs> oh, God, I can only... I can't even think about how many times I bought CX40s to replace the ones I wore out. But anyway, to continue... Uh, the 1986 launch is sometimes referred to as a re-release or relaunch because the Atari 7800 had originally been announced on May 21st, 1984 to replace Atari's 5200, but a general release was shelved due to the sale of the company. That's bad timing. Uh, get To continue, uh, Atari had been facing pressure from Coleco and his ColecoVision console, which pretty much had a stranglehold in the home video game market at this time. Uh, and it supported graphics that more closely mirrored arcade games of the time than either the Atari 2600 or 5200. The Atari 5200, which was released as a 
a successor to the 2600, was criticized for not being able to play 2600 games without an adapter. Yeah, that was a bad idea. But to continue, the Atari 7800 Pro System was the first console from Atari Inc. designed by an outside company, General Computer Corporation. Uh, it was designed in 1983 to 1984 with an intended mass market rollout of June of 1984. What was canceled shortly thereafter due to the sale of company to Tramiel Technology on July 2nd, 1984. The, the project was originally called the Atari 3600, <laughs> which was a funny, which is kind of funny. I'm glad they went with 7800. It sounds better. Uh... With a background in creating arcade games such as Food Fight, GCC designed the new system with a graphics architecture similar to arcade machines of the time, which, is, which made them look pretty close to arcade quality, I will say. Uh, powering the system is a slightly customized 6502 processor, the Atari Sally, uh, running at 1.79 megahertz. Uh, by some measures, the 7800 is more power, powerful, and by others less than 19 than Nintendo's 1983 Famicom, which of course would be the Nintendo Entertainment System here in the U.S. Uh, it uses the 2600's audio chip with the same restrictions for generating sound, which which let it down. But let's continue. Uh, 7800 was initially released in Southern California in June 1984, following an announcement on May 21st, 1984, at the Summer Consumer Electronics Show. Thirteen games were announced by the system's launch. Ms. Pac-Man, Pole Position 2, Centipede, Joust, Dig Dug, Desert Falcon, Robotron 2084, Galaga, Food Fight, Ball Blazer, Rescue on Fractalis, Track and Field, and Xevious. On July 2nd, 1984, Warner Communications sold Atari's consumer division to Jack Tramiel. All projects were halted during an initial evaluation period. Modern publications have often incorrectly asserted that Jack Tramiel mothballed the 7800, feeling that video games were past fad, and subsequently asserted that he dusted off the 7800 once the NES became successful. <laughs> yeah, I did hear that. Um, the reality was that a contractual issue arose in that GCC had not been paid for the, their development of the 7800. Warner and Tramiel battled back and forth over who was accountable, with Tramiel believing the 7800 should have been covered as part of his acquisition deal. In May 1985, Jack relented and paid the GCC uh, the overdue payment. This led to additional negotiations regarding the initial launch titles that GCC had developed and then an effort to find someone to lead their new video game division, which was completed in November 1985. Wow. Uh, the original production run of the 7800 languished on warehouse shelves until it was reintroduced in January 1986 after strong 2600 sales the previous Christmas. The console was released nationwide in May 1986 for 7995. Uh, let's see. Atari's launch of the 7800 under Tramiel was far more subdued than Warner had planned for the system in 1984, with a marketing budget of just $300,000. Uh, additionally, the keyboard and high-score cartridge were canceled, the expansion port was removed lit from later production runs of the system, and in lieu of new titles, the system was launched with the titles uh, for the intended debut in 1984. By the end of 1986, Computer Entertainer claimed that uh, Atari 7800 had sold 100,000 consoles in the United States, uh, less than the Sega Master Systems 125,000 and the Nintendo Entertainment Systems 1.1 million. 
according to Atari, due to manufacturing problems. It only managed to produce and sell 100,000 units by 1986, including units that had been in a warehouse since 1984. A common complaint in 1986 was lack of games, including a gap of months between new releases. For example, Galaga's release in August was followed by Xevious in November. Uh, by the end of 1986, the 7800 had 10 games compared to Sega's 20 and Nintendo's 36. Nine of the NES games were third-party, whereas the 7800 and Master System had no third-party games. See, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> um, like I said, in 1986, this, this, that paragraph I just read confirmed it. I knew it just by uh, how many people I knew had a Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, Nintendo had a stranglehold on the home video game market, and there was very little that was going to budget until 1988 or 89 when the Genesis came out. Okay, so to continue, uh, Atari's lineup for the 7800 emphasized high-quality versions of popular arcade games like Joust and Asteroids, which at the time of the 1986 launch were four and seven years old, respectively. Yeah, that's true. Uh, let's see, 11 titles were developed and sold by three third-party co companies under their own labels for 7800, those three being Absolute Entertainment, Activision, and Frago, with the rest published by Atari themselves. However, most Atari development was contracted out. Some NES titles were developed by companies who had licensed their title from a different arcade manufacturer, while the creator of the NES version would be restricted from making a competitive version of an NES game the original arcade copyright holder was not precluded from licensing out rights to a home version of an arcade game to multiple systems. Through this loophole, Atari 7800 conversions of Mario Brothers, Double Dragon, Commando, Rampage, Xenophobe, Akari Warriors, and Kung Fu Master were licensed and developed. The Atari 7800 remained officially active in the United States between 1986 and 1991, and in Europe between 1989 and 1991. On January 1st, 1992, Atari Corp formally announced that the production of the 7800, the Atari 2600, the 8-bit computer line, and the Atari XC game system would cease. It has since been discovered that Atari Corp continued to develop games such as Toki for the 7800 until all development was shut down by May 1993. By the time of the cancellation, Nintendo's NES dominated the North American market, controlling 80%, while Atari Corp. controlled just 12% of the market. Despite trailing the NES in terms of the number of units sold, the 7800 was a profitable enterprise for Atari Corp., benefiting largely from Atari's name and the 2600 compatibility. Profits were strong, owing to low investment in game development and marketing. Retro Gamer Magazine, issue 132, reported that Atari UK marketing manager Daryl Still said that it was very well stocked by European retail, although it never got the consumer traction that the 2600 did. I remember we used to sell a lot of units through mail order catalogs and in the less affluent areas. So yeah, uh, I think that, that two-year window from when Atari's you know, until when Tramiel bought the uh, consumer division of Atari uh, to when they, it was re-released in 1986, that I think that pretty much kind of killed it. I think if it had come out in 1984 and just kept going into 1985, it would have, I think it would have had a stronger showing than it did. 
but that's <laughs> that's business for you. I mean, when the NES came out in 1985, everybody had to have one. And I think they were on sale. I think they first started coming. I think they first were retailed at like $200. So it wasn't cheap to get an NES. But yeah, I mean, but they had tons of, they had the, they had the games that people wanted to play and more games came out. And like, like they said, by 1986, the end of 1986, Nintendo had 36 games and the 7800 only had 10. You can't compete. I mean, by the time the 7800 came out, it's like I said, you know, like I said in a previous episode, by the time this came out and people were made aware of it, NES had a stranglehold. I mean, you heard it. I mean, they had 80% of the market share by 1986. You know, that's you can't compete with that. You know, I mean, it was ridiculous. And, and like I said, by the time of the cancellation, which was, uh, what, uh, 1991, the beginning of 1992, by that time, the NES had had a complete domination of the American market. And then on top of that, in 1992, the, uh, the Super Nintendo had come out in 1991. So Nintendo just... They, they had pretty much everything. I mean, by this time, the main competitors were the NES because they'd sold so many. The Super NES, which was just starting to get rolling. And then the Sega Genesis. Those were the three systems that were in major competition by the end of 1991. And the reason why I know that is going to be told in story time. So stay tuned. <laughs> okay. Um, that's the... Uh, 7800. My experience, like I said, were extremely limited. I did. I only played the system a few times. Uh, I did notice the game quality was high, but by this time, like I like I've just ranted about, no one was going to beat the NES. By 1986, there was just no way. It had way too much market share. Um, the graphics, of the games were good, but the sound was not great, which let it down. Like I've been alluding to while I've been reading the Wikipedia history. So, yeah, I mean, I play the 7800 games in emulation, and, yeah, they're really good games. They're good-looking games. But the problem is, yeah, the sound the sound lets it down because they use a 2600 chip instead of using a... I think the better way would have been to just use dual chips in the actual system and somehow having the system sense what kind of cartridge is being used and to use that or at least have an advanced uh, sound chip that could play you know they could do the 2600 sounds but also have you know the uh the power to you know have true uh really good arcade emulation uh sounds for the 7800 games but that might have made the system too expensive but who knows that i don't know anything about these things i'm just saying so enough of that. Uh, that was the 7800. Uh, if you owned one, uh, if you played the games, if you have any thoughts about anything that I talked about, and you know whether it be the Wikipedia history or my personal experiences, uh, by all means, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, that's it for episode number 20. Uh, let's see, moving right along to 21... Oh, I've got quite a bit to talk about. Let's see. I've got uh, another 
Uh, are you experienced in strategy uh, for another game? Which reminds me, I have to get off my butt and write up the strategy for this game. <laughs> I've been slacking a little bit. Things have been busy. Uh, let's see, we've got an arcade review. Uh, let's see, we've got another one for uh, home systems. So, yeah, this is going to be a really good one. So, by all means, stay tuned. I will get this episode out by the end of the week, which is the 21st of December. I should have it out by then. And we will, you know, we will just see what we can do about getting 20 out before the end of the year. So I will say, uh, everybody, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, Merry Kwanzaa, uh, happy Festivus, whatever you celebrate during this time of year. Uh, have a good time, do it safely, and we'll see about getting another episode out by the beginning of the new year. So this is Brian saying, have fun out there, good gaming, happy holidays, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.